Hello and welcome to episode six of the Able to Care podcast. Uh, my name is Andy Baker. I am the lead trainer and a managing director of Able Training Support Limited, um, a company specializing in uh, teaching and delivering training to the care sector. I've got over 20 years background in the health, in the health and social care industry, um, specializing in complex and challenging behavior. And today my co-host is... I'm Michael Ind. Um, I have 30 years experience working in residential children's homes of various various different kinds. Um, and I'm, Andrew's just very kindly invited me along today to ask yeah. me some questions, I believe. Yeah, thank you so much for, for coming along and joining us. Yeah, obviously, um, our, our usual co-host, Nadine, you look very different, so I don't think anybody <laughs> will confuse the two of you. Um, but yeah, Michael's very very nicely stepped in to uh, come and do a podcast with us. He's got a, a vast experience working with uh, with additional needs and, and children with additional needs specifically. And today's podcast, we're going to be talking about sensory processing disorder. So in the last podcast we did, um, episode five, we looked at sensory processing in dementia. Um, this time we're focusing more around kind of the child setting and learning disability, autism kind of area as far as sensory processing is concerned. So Michael and I have been having a little bit of a chat uh, just before the podcast and things like that. And uh, Michael's come across a few individuals in his time yes, that, that, have engaged, uh, that have experienced as he recognises now, I think you were sort of saying, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, some of the sort of the current children that you're supporting definitely have potentially got a diagnosis or something like yes, that, and it's recognised. Yeah. But you think over the time of your years, you know, you've come across it, but it wasn't recognised. Not recognised, possibly because the wealth of information that's now available because of the training that's available to people yeah. wasn't there when I started in 1991. There was autism itself was. Not certainly at the level that I was working at was not understood mm. as much as it is now. Definitely. I think it's probably the case, and so yeah. those those aspects of it were not understood at all. Really, yeah. it wasn't. It was a very different world back then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I know you were saying there, kind of the when you first started teaching in in sorry working in care, there was still this aspect of almost there was an aim to stop individuals with autism from behaving autistically. Uh, I think you were saying that about the stimming and stuff yes, like that as yes. an example. Yeah. Yeah, that was something that would happen. So a young person would be flapping and they would they would be told to stop flapping or there would be some other self-soothing behaviour the young mm. person would be um involved with. And I guess some of the concerns around that were well if, if someone's continually kind of flapping their hands, there's possible damage to joints and things like this. Yeah. Which so they could they came from it came possibly from a good place, but actually maybe wasn't as helpful as it could have been. Yeah, I know um, with a lot of the behavioural management stuff that I teach, so um, I'm trained in what's called applied behavioural analysis. Uh, and applied behavioural analysis was originally developed as a way of um, kind of getting children with autism not to be quite as autistic. Yeah. And it's got a lot of negative uh, publicity. So one of the things we used to be kind of forcing them to engage in eye contact because that's yes, yes, neurotypical yes. behavior and you should yeah. engage in eye contact. And when I'm teaching about it, I compare it in a similar way to once upon a time, we used to force left-handed people to write right-handed and we thought that was the best thing and the right thing and they should do that. And I was actually one of those people. Oh, were you? Yes, yeah. yeah. Which caused, uh, if anyone's ever seen my handwriting, they realize that that probably wasn't <laughs> the right thing to do. <laughs> no, that's it. It's 100%. I think there was a desire to try and cure people, wasn't yes. there? And that's still that's still prevalence in some in some settings. You still see some of that from time to time. Yeah. And actually people some some of these things aren't curable. No. And no. it's helping people live with them all people around them to live with them, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that um 
as you said, there's a lot more understanding now. And if we look at, um, if we just take autism, and obviously there's loads of different conditions where sensory processing issues could play a part. But currently sensory processing isn't recognized as a separate diagnosis. It is only within the autistic diagnosis that sensory processing is kind of officially recognized. Um, and it was 2013 uh, that the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of, of Mental Health Ill uh, Illnesses, which is the American um, diagnostical tool, it was 2013 that autism, Asperger's, PDD-NOS was changed to autism spectrum disorder and that was included within it. Um, but it was only January this year that the ICD-11, which is a European version of that, I don't know whether you're familiar no, with these at all, um, uh, actually caught up and, and made the European in line with that. So Americans are always a little a bit ahead on the, on the diagnostical tools. Um, so, and that's where, again, sensory processing has been brought into that overall kind of diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about today will be more probably focused around children who are recognized to be in the autistic spectrum. Yes. Um, about 90% is a statistic of children on the autistic spectrum have some level of sensory wow. processing. I had no idea it was that issues. high. Yeah. yeah. That's surprising. And there's actually more and more is starting to come to awareness that the sensory processing issues that those individuals are experiencing are probably more effect or impact more on their day-to-day -day life than actually the communication differences and difficulties are. Yes. That the communication difficulties and differences can be fairly easily overcome to some degree or another, um, but the sensory processing issues are something that, that also impact on communication. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll go through the kind of a little bit about the, the senses and we'll kind of give a bit of information about them and, and anytime you kind of jump in and okay. if you've got a story around it or going, oh, I met a kid like that and, <laughs> and we'll kind of do it that way if that's the right, Michael. Okay. Uh, well, first off, um, the obvious question I think is worth getting people to think about is how many senses do we actually have? So uh, I don't know whether you've done any training in this or you're aware of it, but how many senses are you aware of? So the traditional answer to this, I feel like I'm on, um, is it QI where they have? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the traditional answer to this is five. Yes, absolutely. Um, which is sight, yep. um, touch, yep. smell, yep. Um, Taste. Taste. Yes, and. And hearing. There you go. And that, that's the, but I'm aware that there are, so there's a sense of balance, for example. Yeah. There's a sense of kind of spatial awareness that's mm -hmm. around. Um, there's a, a sense of kind of compression and being being mm -hmm. held tight and that kind yeah. of thing, isn't there? So yes. there are many more senses of, than, than just the five that we're originally 100%. aware of. And, and other things will impact on those five as well. Yeah, definitely. So uh, there is a theory out there that, that actually there's 53. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not, again, we're not going to go through all 53. We're not going to go and sense number 49 is and stuff like that. And um, typically, when we're talking about sensory processing um, disorder and issues, we tend to base it on the eight. Okay. Yeah. So we keep it fairly simple. Um, so, as you mentioned, the five you mentioned there are what we call the public senses. They're what we all experience. So, um, as you say, it's kind of using our major organs like our, our skin recognizes tactile our eyes for visual ears for auditory uh, tongue for taste nose for smell so the, these are ones most people think of you mentioned quite rightly some of the other ones there so vestibular is the one you were mentioning around yeah. balance then we've got what we call proprioception which i think is what you're referring to as like spatial awareness yes yeah, yeah. so proprioception is is knowing where our arms and legs are in the world essentially yeah. knowing, knowing our kind of position or body position 
And the last one that um, we tend to refer to is is called interception. And interception is our internal organs communicating with us. So hunger, thirst, tiredness, but also the emotions as well. So anger, fear, and stuff like that is is how do you know when you're angry? Well, you can feel it. You you tense up. Your body temperature increases. Your heart rate starts going. So these are also part of our our senses. Um, but, and the reason it may seem like from eight to jumping to 53 seems quite a challenge. But for instance, if we take tactile, just as a simple one, well, I've got the ability to pick up gentle touch. I've got the ability for deep pressure, which yeah. you also mentioned there, for hot, for cold. Um, uh, one interesting one, and this is, I actually heard this on QI, as you mentioned, it, <laughs> as going to, we don't actually have a, a tactile receptor for water for wetness we have no hydro receptors so we can't feel wet so the only way that we know something is wet is due to temperature and tactile Ah, reduction so we can't feel wet again i found that interesting but (laughs) it's the kind of fact that appeals to me too yeah absolutely (laughs) well interesting so there's only a few animals that can like we can't taste water but dogs can for instance as well yeah which is quite interesting so um we're interesting ish as far as uh, those eight senses then, um, I know when we were chatting, there's a bit of a stereotype around autism, isn't there? That, yes. that most people are aware that some kids with autism have ear defenders. Yeah, I think there's been, on certainly on television programmes and films, that's been yeah. the trial of it. And indeed, there are some children I've worked with who have, and it has been helpful yeah. to have those, especially as, as I mentioned, as we were talking earlier, if you have a, a residential establishment which has fire checks once a week, as yeah. they meant to, and you have young people who... A, a very um, find the, the alarms very difficult and yeah. so the ear defenders at those times will be very helpful yeah. and just sometimes just kind of blocking out general noise because a residential establishment can be a very very noisy place and Busy, lots, yeah. of, lots of stimulus in there anyway 100% I think you said the, the place you, you currently work is 10 children on, on the premises yes, isn't it that's and that's right, yeah. any place with I mean that's 10 children plus staff yes and I should imagine you've got a fair few staff in I should imagine it's quite a busy environment it is, it's yeah, not going to have quiet busy. very no, often is it <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one thing to just address on that I think straight away that I think there's a confusion sometimes that I've come across though that oh he struggles with noise in the fact that there's an external like a fire alarm or something like that yeah. but then that same kid will then go up to their bedroom and they'll put the TV on and the radio on and the music on and stuff like full that volume. and full volume yeah. and it's like well how are they experiencing difficulty with noise if they can do that and, and one of the things and, and I mentioned it to you is well one you can control and one you can't Yeah. and there's a big difference between something you control and something you can't if it becomes overwhelming and I control it I can turn them off yeah. if somebody else is making that noise and I can't control it then that's going to become overwhelming. I don't know how to escape this. And I think that's that's always worth kind of bearing in mind when, because there is numerous uh, ways that these different uh, discrimination of the uh, the information that they get comes yes. through. Yeah. So um, there is what's called sensory processing disorder. So um, a Dr. Ayers, a, an occupational therapist, basically kind of recognized that some children seem to be, she referred to kind of out of sync with their sensory, uh, sensory processing and what's called sensory integration. So we've got these eight different senses uh, that all come through. And integration is the blend of those senses together to help yes. us to understand the world. And I think you've already kind of mentioned that or referred to that. Um, and I used in the example of the last podcast, 
that when I look at a cup, I'm, I'm using my eyes, but actually there's loads of pre-information I've gained through my senses. I know what texture that's going to feel like. I know yeah. how what weight it's going to be. And I kind of know the, whether it's going to feel cold on my skin or warm on my skin and those sorts yeah. of things. If it's got stuff in it, it'll feel warm. And I only know that through previous experience and previous learning and an integration of those different senses together. I must have cut touched a cup before i must have felt it i must yes. have you put it to my mouth and stuff like that to to know that information if i've never experienced that before yeah. i wouldn't have ever kind of developed it so sensory processing disorder is usually about a difficulty with the integration of those different senses together uh, and you'll see from the bit of paper there this kind of um uh, uh, hierarchy so from sensory processing disorder we've then got three different disorders that affect it so um or or could be part of that. We've got sensory modulation um, disorder. So just to expand on what modulation is a little bit, I, I, there's a couple of examples or analogies you could use. But one is, uh, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, like a, a mixing desk in our in our brain that's kind of all the information is coming through and we adjust the levels to be able to cope with that information and make sure they balance out. Another quite a good example is um, like when we're cooking that we can turn up the hob, we can turn down the hob of all the different dishes that we're cooking to make sure the meal all comes together at the same time. If we heat up too much, it boils too quick. If we turn it down too low, it takes ages to boil. So if we think of that as modulation about sensory information coming through, if it is sound, and we'll use that one because again, like I said, most people have some made for experience of that. If I'm poor at modulating sound input and people are making noise in the background, I can probably shut that noise off a little bit and just go, don't pay attention to it yeah. and, and kind of habituate to that noise. Whereas somebody with sensory processing issues may really struggle to do that. They can't adjust the volume, if you like, on the yeah. mixing desk. So it's too loud and they can't turn it down or ignore it. Um, so one way I kind of get this over is, I don't ever heard of, have you ever heard of what's called the cocktail party phenomenon? Don't think so. No, okay. So <laughs> the cocktail party phenomenon is, is if we're at a bar and yeah. me and you are having a conversation, there's obviously loads of other conversations going on around the room. Yeah. But I'm able to kind of drown all of those out and just focus on our conversation. Yes. Now, I'm still listening or I'm still hearing all of the other conversations. I'm just not listening to them. Because yeah. if I hear my name mentioned, that will draw my attention to it. I see. So I'm able to kind of modulate what I want to pay attention to and what I don't want to pay attention yeah. to. So I use an example like if I'm watching the TV and I hear a plane go over, I might go, oh, plane. But then I switch the plane off and I just focus on the TV, yeah. essentially. And I'm able to kind of desensitize to all the other information. Yeah. But somebody with modulation difficulties may have to listen to the TV and the plane and the clock ticking and the tap dripping and the neighbor three door just banged a door, but it sounded like it was in the room and I'm feeling the clothes on my skin. And, and, yes. and all of those kind of inputs are coming through at the same time. Now, for those of you at home think that sounds quite rough, um, most of it experiences to a certain extent. If you ever had it, Michael, where you're, let's say, trying to get on with some work, probably at work, trying to do your handover <laughs> notes or something All like time. that, yeah. <laughs> and other people have been making noise in the background. You can yes. feel this anxiety building going, can you be quiet? I'm trying to concentrate. Yeah. And it's that sensation of not being able to modulate the information coming through that starts to build anxiety. Yeah. And I use the analogy of that, imagine that times a thousand every second of every day. It would, be, it would be incredibly difficult to, to work with. And I, I think I've seen children with, ha, have struggled with that to yeah. process everything and, and the level of confusion it causes, which again causes great anxiety, doesn't it? Yeah, you've massively got that so. Kind of, and, and it is a, a sense of confusion, isn't it, mm -hmm. that, that it causes, definitely. I, I think, um, and this is where it ties in with that 
autism side of things. So let's say that we've got a child who's trying to process all of the auditory information that's coming on in the environment. Because I say, even when we're in a quiet, quiet room right yeah. now, the lights are making a noise. You know, there is the rustle of the paper, there is the breathing in the room and stuff, yeah. but we're not paying attention to it. But if imagine I'm having to process that and then somebody asks me a question. I've then got to kind of discriminate and make sure I'm aware that question is more important than all the other sounds in the room. Yeah. Now that, for me... My brain does it like that most of the time. <laughs> no, not always, <laughs> most of the time. But for somebody with, um, with sensory processing, it might have to be a case of, um, okay, that's not important, 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 that's not important. Oh, somebody just spoke to me. I need to do something with that. Yeah. But quite often, because that isn't instantaneous, we then to think they haven't listened to us, haven't heard us, so then we then to repeat it. So now we've just added more stimulation on top of again. So we're going to go through that same journey again. Now we're starting to get irritated with them because they're not listening to us. Yeah. And suddenly this child is getting told off because they're not listening. And it's that not understanding their processing time. And I'm yes. sure you've, you've seen oh, very, that. Very much so. There's sort of the processing time. But I mean, we have children who, who can take can take two days to process things. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's a, a delay in processing with most of the young people I work with. There's, there's a good a good two or three minutes between asking something. And for some children, for some children, repeating the question is an acceptable Benef- way yeah, of doing beneficial. it. For other, for other young people, it's a case of leave it yeah. and allow them to process that information and then react to it. So obviously you, uh, you've probably been working with a lot of the children that you've got in your care at the moment. You said, I think you've been eight years at the place? Eight you're years, currently, yeah, currently seven, at, seven yeah. Years, and obviously I'm sure you've seen some children come and some yes, children indeed, go and yeah. stuff like that. But I should imagine you you learn about the particular children and you, you get used to that and you know, give them a couple of yes, minutes. Exactly. How do you find new staff kind of engage with that or cope with that? It's quite difficult for new staff coming into it to yeah. learn. I mean, we have we have very detailed care planning process, so the information is very clearly written down. Yeah. That this is this is what needs to be done with this particular child. This yeah. is how we work alongside this child to help them achieve the best they they can achieve. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it, but there's a difference between reading something on paper and actually experiencing it, and then the emotions that can be conveyed when that feeling of not being listened to, for yes. example, for an adult, yeah. can actually be very challenging, can't yeah, it? And yeah, yeah, Until you understand it's not a personal thing, mm. then actually, you, you it is. It makes you angry. It makes you feel, oh, no one's listening to me. I, I, it's not. I don't feel happy about that. I'm not <laughs> valued, and so there's a response to that. So yeah. it's it's yeah. very it's very necessary to kind of train that out of people. So actually. It's not. It's not a personal thing. This young person needs time to process, and you you will build that relationship more effectively if you give that young person time to process properly. Yeah, I think personalization. We, there's no point in criticizing stuff for that. I think it's perfectly normal. I always I always use the example that if I'm teaching, and when I first started teaching, and I saw somebody yawn, I immediately assumed that I was boring. Yeah. Well, there's lots of reasons why they might be yawning, and that's the same, isn't it? They're, they're not listening to me. Uh, and personalizing it. Um, I remember reading a wonderful story from there's a book called The Reason I Jump. Um, it's written by a nonverbal autistic lad. He learned how to write using an iPad and oh, yeah. he's now written, I think, three books he's actually put together. Uh, and it's, it's really nicely written, kind of short stories, nice and easy to read. I recommend to anybody who's, who's interested in working with those uh, on the autistic spectrum to read it. And I remember one particular chapter kind of stood out to me and, and it was kind of a bit of a I get it, kind of, uh, kind of moment. I think I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said, I knew my mum was in the room and I knew she was talking to me. 
Yeah. But I was watching the dust dance in the sunlight and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. So she just didn't seem important in that moment. And to me, that was just like, oh, yeah, I get that. Because if I was if I was looking at Niagara Falls and somebody said to me, have you got your socks on yet? I'd probably go, you're not important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, I suppose it's, yeah, it's a bit. I think the, the autistic aspect is the whether mum's important in that moment, but the sensory processing is the watching the dust to dance yeah. in the sunlight. And, and when we talk about the modulation side of things, like I said, that it could be overwhelming, but there's one of the things it could be that sensory seeking. They're actually, they're understimulated by, by stuff in the environment as well. So yeah. I've also encountered that yeah. in my workplace. Uh, I have a young person who I work with who, um, will deliberately wet floors right and it was odd you saying about the water actually mm-hmm. earlier that we don't have a sense of wet so perhaps it is not that he's 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 feeling water that actually yeah. he's he's wanting the temperature yeah or something like that but he likes to have the, the floor slippery and wet so mm. that he can feel it on his feet and yeah. if he can't um if 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 a tap isn't available to do that with then he will dribble right or he might urinate on the floor as well yeah. so that's in order to create that sensation which is yeah. quite distressing for people working with it who don't understand it 100 so it's very important to make sure that there are opportunities for yeah. play in the bathroom we have wet rooms at work so it's good for him to use those wet rooms for for that kind of sensory exploration that he, he clearly requires it's, it settles him it calms him it's something he very obviously needs to do there's one um, similar similar to that he he would um piece this is a lad I uh, had in my care and um he used to uh pee on clothing yes and he also used to prefer to go in the cat litter tray than yeah. in the toilet okay uh, and when we explored that it seemed to be a visual thing he enjoyed the color change oh, okay but it was a kind of a so again it's sensory like, yeah yeah that, that one kind of activity of peeing on stuff that yeah. you can lots of different reasons and, and the assumption would probably be dirty protest like yeah. doing it on purpose to wind me up but it's very much a case of yeah, it was some sensory input that he was getting yeah, from that activity. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could have been a little bit of sa- auditory as well, but we think yeah, it was, more, was more, visual, more, more visual. Yeah, yeah. We believe that was the case. So I said the uh, on that first kind of list, so the sensory modulation disorder, um, there's, there's three categories that then fall under that. Um, we've kind of adhered to a couple of them. So sensory under-responsivity. So most of us kind of stay within a within a kind of field of, of, of coping. Um, we've all go through periods of one thing I'd say, Michael, I don't know whether you for yourself. I know there's times where I have slight sensory difficulties. Um, for me personally, when I get very tired, I struggle with soft touch. Like I, I'm much more hypersensitive. Um, I don't know whether you've got any in yours, but I suppose actually, I suppose if I'm tired, I'm more, I'm more sensitive to, to pain. I don't know whether that falls. Yeah, I think you know, there are things like if I'm walking home, I can, if I'm tired, I can yeah. feel the soles of my feet hurting. Whereas yeah. if, if I'm, um, I had a good night's sleep and I'm not tired, then I don't even notice. So. I spoke to uh, Nadine, who usually does a podcast with me. She she struggles with noise. So when she starts to get tired, she finds that noises and too many people in the room start to become overwhelming for That's her and it, stuff. Yeah. So one thing is, is always worthwhile, isn't it? That everything's a spectrum. And mm-hmm. we all have... Uh, sensory biases like I'll probably like taste a certain food and you'll like different tasting yeah. food and some people like it dim in a room and some people like it light in a room and some people like it cold and some people like it hot and they're just sensory biases what we all like we all have sensory difficulties where we find things a bit overwhelming like as you said yeah. when you're tired you, said you struggle with pain a little bit more going back to QI I actually saw an interesting thing about the um, the taste of coriander ah, right, okay. and some people yeah. taste coriander and find it very nice genetically right whereas okay. some people 
taste of a soapy taste and don't like it at all. Mm. And, a, and they think it's a genetic thing. The, the, the famous uh, internet thing, wasn't it? The, what colour is the dress? And some people sort of blue mm. and some people sort of white or grey. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing as well. Yeah, so, so that's, that's just differences in our oh, brains. That's, spe- that's the spectrum, isn't it? That's yeah. the spectrum. It, it is, yeah. To be, but to be that off the spectrum and that's it, that the far along the spectrum the yeah, extremes, and that's where it's a disorder like we always use that term disorder impacts on their ability to engage in day-to-day life that yes. makes it a disorder so we all have difficulties we can all dysfunction but disorder is where it's impacting so yeah the under responsibility is is a lack of stimulus everything feels a little bit underwhelming yeah. if you like the over sensory or over responsivity is where everything feels too much everything the volume is turned up on every one of the senses too much and that's the easiest way i can maybe separate there's also um what's called sensory craving and sensory craving is where individuals who seek out this this sensory information so they constantly want to touch everything. They want to keep moving all the time. They seek out visual yeah, um, stimulus, stimulus or, or auditory stimulus yeah. and stuff like that. And, and I think I, when we were talking about the, the childhood, they seek out the sensory as far as lots of things in their environment, but then they're running away from, yes, from yeah, yeah. Uh, too much noise that they can't control. I think they don't. nobody likes to fit into one box, and this is always a bit of a... Yeah. You can have some individuals who are sensory under-responsive in some of their senses, over-responsive in other senses, yeah. and that can actually fluctuate as well. There's what we call sensory fluctuators, which actually can change throughout go the day. The go between the Depending two. Depending yeah. on, I guess, how tired or how awake they are, or, or varying factors. Yeah, absolutely. I did actually work with a young, well, young man, and he was, um, he was uh, under-responsive to... Yeah. Um, he would spend his whole day in bed. Just right. with his duvet pulled over, and initially we we thought that this was um, that this was because he was tired, or that there were various issues around him being tired, not wanting to get up, task yeah. avoidance, this kind of thing. But it was we, what, what we learned, or what we were told when they examined it, was that actually it was he was sensitive. What he needed was more stimulus yes. to get him up, yeah, and to get him out of bed. And so we did stuff like add music and add um, smells from the kitchen, um, bacon cooking, that kind of thing to yeah, try and. Yeah get him to get up to raise his raise the sensory environment for that young person yeah and it, it worked with varying degrees of success but it was yeah brilliant that, that that's kind of uh, nice you refer to that um one of the things so uh, there's a book by a lady called uh, carol kranowitz uh, called the out of sync child um and she summarized each of these different um labels if you like it's probably the easiest way of referring to them um in a, in ways that may be a little bit more accessible for for the non-scientific yes, community yeah. kind of thing and she referred to so the over responsive where where the volumes turned up too much she referred to as sensory avoiders because everything's too much so these kids want to move away from it they want yeah. to escape it whether it be headphones or whether it be just having a meltdown because they need to leave the room or whatever it yeah. is the the person you were just mentioning there was it a lad that you mentioned yes. yeah so potentially he's under responsive so he's under stimulated as you as you mentioned yeah. there and she referred to it and, and described it like the sensory straggler and, and yeah. the sensory slumper as well and it's kind of that sensory straggler is a little bit kind of what what's going on and they're, they're kind of slow on the uptake yeah. of sensory information not anything else but so it takes them a while to process that information it takes them a while to catch up with what's going on yeah. or um and because it's under stimulating they 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 don't seek it out they're kind of there's a there's a nice analogy which is um imagine that 
the size of my cup is different. So yeah. if you've got somebody with a kind of a large cup, um, they need more sensory information to get that same yes. kind of response or yeah. same stimulus. Um, but then there's two personality types. There's the one that kind of isn't bothered where it's full, so they become the sensory slumper that don't engage. Or you've got the ones that want it, so they become the sensory seeker. Yeah. They, they try and find that more information. So the sensory seeker is sensory craving. Um, is that difference in really whether they're they're active in seeking that information or they just can't be bothered with it. And, and so, can, so can the person be both those things? At various times, As you yeah. said, about, as we were saying earlier. And it's a little bit personality type in there. It's yes, kind of what yeah. kind of personality they've yeah. got. Are they somebody who wants to feel stimulated or they're just given up on feeling stimulated? And, you know, I think that makes quite a difference. I suspect this young person was, was both from his yeah. behaviours. There were things that he would, he, he would love the music up loud. And yeah. then at other times it was complete... Complete dark and quiet. Right, okay. So Did he struggle with his sleeping and stuff yes, like that? Massive, yeah, massive, any little light in the room, yeah, any little noise in the yeah. room and stuff like that. Yeah. That's it. So sensory processing doesn't turn off when it's time for bedtime. I think, well, I think the whole circadian rhythm thing was, was out. Was there was no part. circadian rhythm at all now. I think we could probably do a, a whole other podcast on just that, a, yeah. <laughs> on sleeping and, and autism and, and special yeah. educational needs because um, whether it be ADHD or whether it whatever it is, yeah. I think sleeping is one of those times a lot of people have challenges. And yes, I think indeed, yeah. our, our westernised ideas of when we should be sleeping, that you go to bed at this time, you get up at this time, yeah. are not suitable for all of us, but we beat ourselves up when <laughs> that isn't yeah, the case. Better, yeah. and we all know an early bird and a, and a, and a, and a night owl kind of thing. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just to continue on as far as the labels then. So there's three different ones with a sensory modulation disorder, under-responsivity, uh, over-responsivity, and then a sensory craving. Now, there is a different thing called sensory discrimination. Um, I don't know whether you have aware of that. that term, no. So discrimination is the fact that I can feel two different materials and tell the difference between them. The fact that you can say uh, sealed or shield and I can tell the difference between those two words. Yeah. These are ability to discriminate between colours, sounds, um, textures, it, it, again, all of the senses. Now, discrimination basically lets us know what's safe and what's not safe. So yeah. when we're very young, we're high in defensiveness and low in, in discrimination. So if you imagine like a, a doorbell, for instance, well, the first time I hear a doorbell, well, like all dogs do, they bark at the doorbell because yeah. they don't generate that, that discrimination to go, that's actually a dangerous sound. It's basically loud noise. That could mean something. I need to bark. And that's similar to kids in early stages. So yeah. new touches, new sensations can feel they've got to be defensive towards them because yeah. they might be dangerous. Um, as we get older, as we develop, we increase towards discrimination. So when I hear the doorbell and um, go to it and I see this person and it's my grandmother and I know it's okay for her to give me a hug and yeah. stuff like that, because all of those things are safe. So over a period of time, through experiences, we start to develop the ability to discriminate rather than be defensive. Uh, uh, hopefully I explained that. Yes, no, well. I think yeah? I, yeah, okay. that makes sense. And one of the um, recognitions with individuals with sensory discrimination order is a they don't do that. They don't develop that learning and that ability. So they can't differentiate between the different senses in the same way. So whether it be auditory, they can't tell the difference between shield and sealed. So that's going to cause confusion in communication, yes, for instance. Yes. Um, they can't dif differentiate in, in movement and colors in the same way as we might consider to be appropriate. Yeah. So in all of the eight senses, you might have an individual who struggles to discriminate between 
um, like, where am I being touched on my body? As yeah. an example, they may struggle to discriminate. Um, is that a soft touch or is it a hard touch? I may struggle to discriminate between yeah. the two. So this causes a whole new set of challenges that mixed in with the modulation. So the analogy for discrimination I use, and it ties in the two, um, I think most of us are, we manage our senses a bit like um, a, a traffic conductor, a policeman managing the traffic, kind yeah. of going, okay, we're paying attention to you right now. You come this way on this route. All the rest of you stay on red. All the rest of you stay where you are as far as the cars are concerned. Presumably, there's some kind of safety thing in the in the hierarchy we give to those. So mm. there's a, a discrimination about this is the most important thing at the moment. Yes. I, 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 have you ever seen the thing where you have the, the book and the the things that if you read a book and the words that appear a threat to you so for example if you see the word wolf written on a page right, okay. that will be the first word you see on the page ah. because there's a link between that and danger ah. so those things are the first so I, i'm imagining that that's yeah that's the, that hierarchy of what's threatening is, is well, yeah that comes up as an evolutionary thing is it? yeah that's i haven't heard, i haven't come across it on the on the reading thing that's really interesting um obviously that that makes sense with an auditory uh, yeah. We definitely kind of, and, and we notice okay. things that and are more important. The sense of smell, for example, we our, our sense of smell is probably our most, most finely tuned. But, mm. And why you very quickly lose the smell of your own aftershave yeah. is because you're trained to receive new new smells that may be threatening. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the the uh, loss of smell of the aftershave, for instance, that's that's called kind of sensory adaption. Yeah. Because if we were smelling that all of the time, that would be overwhelming. And, and, and you, you wouldn't be able yeah. to smell things that might be a threat to you. Absolutely. And same as like uh, the clothing on your skin. Yeah. You're not aware of it. You no. switch it off because then you wouldn't be able to tell if somebody was touching you, for yeah. instance. Um, there's also, and part of that, and I think it's what you're referring to slightly, is what's called habituation. So habituation is where we, a bit like with, with drugs, where you habituate to a yeah. period of time and you, that's why you need more of the same yeah. drug to get the same effect. If I'm at a firework display and I hear a loud bang, the first bang, I'll probably jump. But then I probably don't jump for the second, third, fourth, fifth yeah. bang because my brain then goes, that happened, it wasn't dangerous, you don't need to react emotionally to it anymore. Yeah. Um, so you develop this habituation, that's a short-term kind of um, coping strategy, coping well, strategy yeah. yeah. So it's a bit of a mix. And, and again, like you were saying, this is one of the problems for people with sensory processing. They don't seem to habituate in the same way. Yeah. So that first bang is as bad as the second bang, third bang, fourth bang, fifth bang. They don't kind of, the brain doesn't kind of learn to go, that's not actually dangerous, no. so don't need to react to that. Um, so within the, the discrimination side of things, um, yeah, this, this habituation of switching off that they don't seem to do. So the traffic conductor kind of yeah. thing, they've got all of it coming and it's causing a big traffic jam. And, and discrimination is going, oh, they're parked cars, I don't need to pay attention to those. And, and as you said, that's a danger. I, yeah. I need to let that ambulance come through is, is following that analogy forwards, basically. And that's where the discrimination comes in. So the yeah. modulation is managing the traffic. The discrimination is telling what I should and shouldn't be paying attention to. It's yeah. probably a, a simple way of uh, putting an analogy on those. Um, so with the uh, with with Carol Kranowitz, she described that as like the sensory jumbler that they get things mixed up and they make mistakes a lot and stuff like that nice. related to the information coming through. So um, yeah, kind of what does this mean? They don't get the information. Is that good or is it bad? Is it not? Is it, yeah. yeah. So I thought that was quite a nice way of the sensory jumbler kind of yeah, describing yeah. it. Um, the last part of that hierarchy that you can see sensory based motor disorders. So. Sensory-based motor disorder is always going to be a bit of a combination of numerous senses. So you've got 
obviously our tactile, our uh, proprioception, as yeah. you mentioned, but also even our visuals coming into that. So within that, you'll see uh, dyspraxia. Yes. So dyspraxia isn't usually so thought of, particularly as a sensory processing disorder. But dyspraxia is the inability to either visualize something in your mind's eye, yeah. um, so picturing and planning your movement. So to put it into a, let me see if I can put it into a context. So if I put lots of different objects out in front of you, got you to close your eyes and then said, right, when you open your eyes, I'd like you to pick up the blue ball. Yeah. There'd be a pause, not just as you found the blue ball, but also while your brain's programming and I need to move my hand over to pick up that object and bring it back and show it. So yeah. there's actually quite a lot of planning that's involved. I mean, this obviously happens like that. It's a sequential thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's completely automatic and stuff. Yeah. With dyspraxia, that would be significantly slower. Um, they have to, they might struggle to do it. It'd take them a lot longer and they might yeah. knock over a few other things to get to it because the, the, it isn't as automatic, basically. Yeah. Um, th the other one with that is if I was to give you a toilet roll tube and I was to go, okay, I'd like you to make something out of that, turn it into something else. What else could that be? Yeah. And you could go to most children and immediately, oh, it could be a telescope or something like that. There's actually quite a lot there. One, that's visualizing in a mind's eye what else I could use it for. But then it's actually the motor skills of bringing it up to so my eye. It's actually orientating it which way round does it go because if I'm yeah. staring into the side of the, the toilet roll tube, <laughs> it, it doesn't have the uh, the telescopic effect that we want. So actually there's quite a few parts to that and that's where dyspraxia comes in. It's that integration difficulty with all of those yes, different I senses see. coming yeah. in. So, and, and I know there's a lot of comorbidity with with probably a lot of the children autism, yeah yeah, so yeah. It's, uh, that kind of oh it's clumsiness and it's actually actually it's the um dyspraxia yeah or ill sensory processing issues yeah. absolutely and the last one there is postural disorders sometimes referred to as a sensory slumpers and they're maybe more like the lad that you mentioned as well that it was those particular senses so he didn't want to get out of bed perceived as lazy non-engaged yeah. because even something as simple as lifting your arm up in the air requires so much sensory processing work with proprioception, tactile, yeah. fighting against gravity, vestibular and stuff like that that we that we take for granted. So if I'm either under or overstimulated by that, it suddenly becomes it becomes but, hard. Yeah. yeah. So um I think it's worth again for people who are working with anybody with special educational needs or, or autism or anything along those lines, I think it's definitely worth finding more out about or, or working sensory processing issues into their detective work kind of like well is it behavior or is it sensory or very very much so and as a going back to when we when we started the conversation about how how things have moved on mm. and i look back at some of the children who i've worked with and if if only we'd known more than we knew now then some of the outcomes of those young people could have been very different yeah. and so they, they would have um gone for a lot less kind of stress and trauma themselves yeah have people been aware that actually they are struggling with this and it's yeah. not fair to blame them for for something which is is part of the disability yeah definitely i think um uh, we were chatting as well about adhd as an example and i think we could kind of put three things together of anxiety adhd and um and then sensory processing yeah when i'm anxious i struggle to sit still um, I struggle to focus on things um, and uh, I'm, obviously it affects emotionally and yes, stuff like yeah. that. But So that might be, rec you might recognize I'm feeling anxious because I'm, I'm fidgeting, I'm not sitting still and I don't seem to be concentrating. Somebody with ADHD may struggle to sit still. They may struggle to focus and pay attention to things and be yeah. very impulsive in their actions and stuff like that. 
But if what if we've got a child who's actually um, sensory craving or sensory over or under responsive? So they struggle with their balance. And and one of the things that when I was looking into this, one of the things that I found really fascinating, I would consider sitting or standing still to require less balance than walking. But actually, it's the completely yes. the opposite way around. Yeah. Um, and, and as soon as it was pointed out, kind of, well, think about riding a bike. I was like, yeah, it's a lot easier when you're moving, when you're not. Yeah. Oh, well, there's actually footage of people with Parkinson's disease riding bikes. Yeah. Who can barely stand up. Absolutely. And riding a bike, absolutely purposely. Yeah. Perfectly. And it's something I'd never really thought about before. That And, and so I, I had a child in my household that he would, he struggled to sit. He, he was constantly yeah. up and down and up and down. And it was definitely a, I mean, he, he loved the trampoline as well, yeah. which was a really big way of helping him to, uh, get back into his own body, if you like, and, and uh, re-sync with his proprioception yes. or with his vestibular system. Uh, and mealtimes were always a bit of a challenge until we got uh, like a rickety old piano uh, stool. Uh, and when he was eating, he'd get very overexcited and he'd kind of pick things up and then he'd stand up and then he'd he'd stim for a little bit and then yeah. he'd sit back down and then he'd get up and stim for a little bit. And then we got uh, this rickety old piano stool Everything changed, and he was just sat there with the whole thing, kind of rocking, rocking and wiggling in this, <laughs> with a smile on his face, kind of eating away. And it just by giving him that sensory input in one way that saved him having to get it independently yeah, and, yeah. and do it other ways. Yeah. Uh, so I was so we mentioned the uh, the ear defenders. What what other stuff do you have in your environment at the moment, or that you've used in the past? So you know, at with, times we've um, I've worked and we've. Um, limited the surroundings so not too much stuff up on the walls and yeah. it's very tempting in, a, in an establishment to have lots of pictures and lots of things up on the walls all the yeah. time and for some children it's good because they need it you can use uh pic- pictogram things mm-hmm. for, to illustrate but for some children that's not the right way forward they're yeah. overstimulated by them it doesn't um so that's one thing we have sound sensory rooms which are quiet white walls mm-hmm. so it's less stimulation from that where we can take children yeah um, and then if they want to play loud music there, that's something they can do. Yeah. Um, I think of some of the, the visual things. I think you lad, we, I, I, it's funny you should say we have a, a trampoline yeah. for, for that. Not purely for that, but because some children do like that. They're kind of bouncing swings as yeah. well for that kind of sensory stimulation. Yeah. Um, and then general kind of sensory work that you might do with young people. Um, yeah. Toys, sand, um What's the sand? Uh, kinetic sand is quite good. Mm. So play, touch things for, yeah. for the children who are understimulated. Yeah. Uh, messy play for mm-hmm. those as well. So yeah. lots of lots of things like that. Really. Yeah. yeah. I think if there's anything to for children who are overstimulated by things. Well, um, just the, just the ear defenders are the main. The ear defenders, and you said about the like the sensory where it's quiet room basically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you've got yeah. quiet spaces, safe spaces, yeah. and stuff like that. that are I, I think. I mean, I, I guess things like. Um, at night time when you want them because sometimes you want the environment to be up and sometimes you want it to be a bit down so yeah. things like managing the lighting in the place mm. we've got a very good lighting system where right. at the moment where we can kind of modulate in each of the children's bedrooms we can modulate but also on the corridors yeah. we can modulate it night and daytime settings to kind of this is calming down time this well, is that's it. building up time to if they're overly up. visually stimulated then just a red light on, on the TV standby light yeah. could be too much for them and so yeah. That's that's stopping them from sleeping, hundred percent. So, um, some of the things you're referring to there, and I don't know whether you've ever come across it. Uh, so, there's a thing called a sensory diet. Have you ever heard that term? I have heard that terminology. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, with occupational therapy with sensory integration, which which is perceived or a lot of people feel is the the best thing to help 
uh, children to to overcome and manage. So it's it's basically, um, as we said about habituation, it's not that they can't, they may just need an awful lot more help to yeah. habituate to certain senses. Yeah. So a sensory diet kind of um, works to their strengths. It, it helps them to um, uh, to feel in their own body, because especially the ones like proprioception, tactile and vestibular, when they're disorganized, if they're out of sync, or yeah. just that term of Carol Kranowitz, when they're out of sync, you feel disconnected from yourself. In the end, I'm a knowing where I am in the world, knowing where I end and other things start and yeah. things like that helps me to feel safe within my own body, comfortable yeah. in your own skin. We've all heard that terminology yeah. before. And I think when you certainly when you work with autistic children, one of the things you see yeah. is that that sense of they are disconnected from the world they're in. There's a sense of disconnection. Yeah. And being, I, I mean, I always imagine it as being my, um, I mean, everybody's perception of the world is slightly different. Mm. But when we go back to the extremes again, they're on the extremes and their yeah. perception of the world must be so massively different. Yeah, yeah. From from mine, perhaps. Yeah. They, it must be incredibly difficult to understand having that difference going Yeah, on. definitely. And it's no wonder that that anxiety is so connected. Yeah. Because when the world is chaotic, when my vestibular system isn't working, straight away I'm not going to feel connected, which is going to make me feel anxious, which is then going to yeah. lead to further exasperation and stuff. So, um yeah, with the sensory diet, is the aim is kind of every 90 minutes to two hours, uh, the child or the individual is encouraged to engage in kind of sensory activities. Oh, um, and it's it's used kind of either preventatively or during. So yeah. like with the example there with the stool, that's something during the activity to help yeah. them to re-regulate. But another thing we used to do is get this lad to go on the trampoline before we sat down for meals because meals is the time he found hard. So therefore, yeah. let's let's re-regulate him. Let's get him feeling comfortable in his own skin, get that vestibular system kind of organized a little bit. Um, so heavy work is one thing that like yep. the deep press, similar to deep pressure, basically yes, carrying yeah, yeah. something heavy helps them to feel more connected with their own body and the, and the world again. So using these every 90 minutes. Um, That's interesting. I worked with another young person who we, who, um, he ended up he he would wear ruck we would have the heavy rucksack on yeah. and he would keep that on and that made him feel contained and scared. What we doing actually and then also weighted blankets of course yeah. are quite common and yeah. quite have become almost a stereotype in autistic places, haven't they? They have, the yeah. Weighted blanket. But yeah, they're useful. useful. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I'll give you another one which is um so with a lot of individuals with sensory processing struggle with um, oral motor skills, so yeah. eating. And sometimes, well, do they not like that food because it's a texture? Is it the way it looks? So yeah. this could be visual, it could be, ta- it could be tactile, it could be taste, it could be smell. There's lots of reasons why they might not want that meal. If it's tactile, because sometimes it's about texture, one way you can desensitize that, that tactile is using an electric toothbrush. So you regularly get them to use the electric toothbrush, not just at mealtimes, more often throughout the day to basically habituate and desensitize their mouth a little bit so that they can cope with more textures and more tastes and not feel quite so overwhelmed. Well, I I did some training with with CAMS a while back, quite a few years ago now. One of the things they were looking at is eating disorders, Mm. as you mentioned. And uh, the thing that actually a child needs to see something on their plate at least 10 times before yeah. they eat it. But also how important it was for children to be allowed to play with their food because actually the first step towards the tasting is actually playing with your fingers mm. and the sensation on your finger is the tactile thing yeah. so that when it goes in your mouth, it's not quite so much of a shock to you. Yeah. I think just to, to kind of summarise and start to bring it to a close, look at, and we've touched on a few bits of what we can do to help. 
I was bringing in the example of uh, going to the hairdressers and and looking at something as simple as that that we take for granted. I know you were just kind of chatting there uh, before about, um, you know, you found the hairdressers quite a, a, a difficult experience. Yeah. It is sitting still, for a long, <laughs> yeah, sitting still for a long time. So you've got that kind of the uh, vestibular, the proprioception system, but it's the sounds, it's the smells, yeah. it's the, the noises, everything within an environment. So a few things we can do kind of preventative a big thing is planning, isn't it? And I know yeah, that's a, a lot so. of your care plans that you, you'll work with is, is we try and I use the analogy and I spoke to you earlier about it of kind of the firefighting that, that sometimes no matter what you do, you still need a fire extinguisher, but you should put far more time and effort into preventative or having a yeah. fire. So making like having a sensory room within your home is a preventative yeah. um, aspect of, you know, you may not need it for every kid, but it's there waiting, willing uh, for anybody who does need it. Quiet areas, minimizing stimulus off the walls. These are all kind of preventative things. Yes. But planning is if I was, let's say, taking a child to, um, uh, the theme park, for instance. Yes. There's so much risk assessment and planning that would go into that. It isn't just to kind of wake up one day and go, hey, let's go to the theme park, because some of the kids you work with, that would not work and no. it would just be a disaster. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you're planning all the way from what are they are, are not able to eat? Can we take that food with them? Is there somebody to, somewhere to eat? What yeah. rides would they do? Will this kid do any rides? Because if it's vestibular oversensitive, then they ain't going to like rides. If they're understimulated, they'll love the rides. Yeah. So, How will you get them off the rides? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but even like waiting and, and queuing, queuing and yeah. is it busy? And that's, you know, we talk about social stories as well of, yes. of like preparing them for it's going to be busy. There's going to be a lot of children around uh, helping them. It might to be a of, photograph as well. Photographs yeah. and things like that are good. good well, that's the, 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 what I refer to as priming. I don't know whether you've yes. got a different yeah, word yeah. for that. So that's the let's watch a video of the ride and let's. And, and all it is, is trying to get them ready that predictability is something that's very much the requirement of those on the autistic spectrum. We all need, we all like predictability to a certain extent. Like yeah. very few of us enjoy the day when our service engineer will be with you between nine and five. That's <laughs> never a good day. Um, we like to know what's happening and when it's happening, but that's something that's a, a kind of ingrained need into yes. those on the autistic spectrum. And, and for those who have find the world disorganized and overwhelming with the sensory. So planning, priming is getting them, so within hairdressers, for instance, we, we did it where we um, we actually borrowed the hairdresser's apron so we could oh, then do some idea. work to get them used to the smell, get them used to the sensation of the apron on them and things like that to help them to get ready, to prime them before they turn up. Um, we actually, uh, so uh, Michael and I both know each other from uh, the martial arts studio in town. I had somebody contact me about um, their kid who was autistic attending a martial art class. Uh, and, and it was that kind of bit where she asked about, oh, we'd like to come to martial arts and ask those questions. And right at the end, it was kind of like, maybe I can get away with this. Oh, by the way, he's autistic. Is he still okay if he comes? And it's, it's such a sad thing that she felt like that. But I said, absolutely. So the best thing is, like, here's what we'll do. Just get him along to come along five minutes. Don't worry about a lesson. I'm not. How does your son cope with new people? Should I get the instructor to come over or would it be better if you, you talk to him? I'll send you a photograph of what it looks like, what the instructor looks like. Yeah. And that's, that's all the priming stuff to kind of go... Let's make this as predictable as possible. Um, so that's definitely something useful in in the kind of the sensory side as well. We were touching there um, the stage desensitization. So I use the analogy of um, somebody scared of spiders. 
you wouldn't just stick them in a bathtub and just cover them in spiders um, to get them over it. No. And that's the same with sensory processing. We wouldn't just, we'll immerse them in loud sound, they'll get used to it. It may need to be we desensitize over a period of time with those sensory diets, whatever it is, or um, I think you use an example with the food you, yeah. you were talking about there of let's allow them to just play with it first, touch it first. Don't try and force them to eat it straight away. So- we look at a thing called um, zones of proximal, de- proximal development. Have you? Is that something you've no, got? Vygotsky. Yeah. And uh, the idea is is that we all have a comfort zone mm. that we're all comfortable in and yes. happy in and feel safe in and secure in, but we don't grow. Yeah. After that, there's a learning zone. Yes. Oh, yes. Which is do, the place yeah. where all yeah. the learning takes place. Yeah. And then finally, we have the panic zone. Yeah. And the idea is to move people into the learning zone yeah. without moving into the comfort zone. If you have people around the young person, and it can be peers as well as men, members of staff mm-hmm. to manage that, yeah. then that can be a calming factor yeah. and transfer something that might, if they'd done it on their own, be the panic zone into mm-hmm. the learning zone. Yeah. One of the things I said, so during, a few things that we can do to help a young person or child during any activity they're finding a bit of a sensory overload or desyncing to. And, and one that's a good one, and I work with a family, we're doing some consultancy work. They're struggling with um, uh, nail clipping. Ah, uh, yes. Cutting yeah, nails. Because yeah. yeah. again, it's, it, it seems such a normal thing. It's just typical, but there's a number of problems with it. And a lot of you probably come across the quiz quite yeah, a few. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest, I can, underst- I can understand it because yeah. it is. I think a part of me wonders actually if children are more sensitive on the, across their nails than adults are, which might, because I think a lot of children, yes. it is something difficult. Uh, yeah, definitely. Not, not, not just children within the, within the autistic spectrum. Generally. Across the, yeah, yeah, generally. Generally. So there's a few things we could do. If we take that as an example, there's a few building blocks and things that can be used for other stuff. So one is that... One, don't make it all about the nail cutting. Um, yeah. Distraction. So if something they find something hard, then what do they enjoy doing? And can you combine the two together? So if they're playing yeah. with their iPad at the same time as having their hair cut, you might find that gets on better because yes. they're not solely yeah. focused. So like, it's the old thing of like you, you distract a kid over there while you're giving them an injection. Yeah. <laughs> don't you do, hey, watch this and try to draw attention to it. Um, one of the other things, and I think maybe it's part of why children experience it as difficult, we don't do it very often. So no, it's, it's kind of like once a month, maybe, that yeah, the nails yeah. are trimmed, because especially as the nails don't grow very, very yeah. quick. Um, so it's that sudden, and it, there's no opportunity for habituation to occur. It's that no. sudden new thing that I don't do very often. And then it's forgotten and then done again. Absolutely. So right. actually, if you've got a child who struggles with that, don't do it once a month. Maybe even do a nail a night and just systematically kind of just do a nail a night on every night. It, you know, five minutes of stuff could, could maybe help them to kind yes. of cope better. Um, but and then that's a shorter time they're doing it for you're not kind of getting them to sit there for half an hour while you're doing the nails yeah well the nails one obviously getting them to have a bath first so the nails are softer Soft. also yeah. helps um, making a positive so there's actually reward behind it as yeah. well another thing um, it's mentioned in there forward and backward chaining and we, we spoke about that um, separately didn't we related to um, teaching new skills or uh learning new language or anything along those lines we can do a similar thing so within a school setting for instance if you've got a child who experiences um 
over-responsivity to noise and things like that. Like school assemblies are quite a horrific experience. Yeah. So you might go, well, let's get them in early before any other children arrive. Let them find a place that's comfortable. Give them a way of getting out of this. That's another part of it is giving them control. How can they say stop? How can yeah. they say communicate? I'm done with this or I need out. Like even with you said with the ear defenders, have they got a way of going, I need my ear defenders? And that's part of that learning skill to give them more control over it. Yeah. Um, so forward kind of chaining would be getting them in the beginning, seeing how they how they cope and giving them a way out. Backward chaining is can we start off by just getting them in at five minutes at the end, see yeah. how they can cope, and then ten minutes at the end. Um, and, and you mentioned separately about the, the trousers analogy, kind of say, yeah. same thing, desensitized to that. Um, the other part, and I think this is always important, there will be times when the individual will become overwhelmed. And I should imagine you've come across a few children that are yes, yeah, completely, they go into a meltdown and crisis because they cannot eliminate yes, or escape definitely, that. Very yeah. Much so, yeah. what, what kind of strategies do you tend to have? With so sometimes sometimes the strategy we might use for that is change expectations. Yeah. So actually it's, it's about at that point in time, avoid it, get back to a safe place yeah. and rethink, replan. Yeah. Look at your proactive strategies beforehand. Look at the things. Look at your planning. What could we do better? And we, I mean, we, at the moment we're taught to use three questions. What, what went well? Yeah. What didn't, what didn't go so well? What needs to, what needs to change? And then what, cha- what needs what to change? Better. What can yeah. we do better next time? I think yeah. signs of safety. I think they call it. Yeah. I think that's, um, one of the big rules, isn't it? Flexibility of thinking from the staff is one yeah, of the biggest things. So going, yeah. you, we are trying to encourage a routine and boundaries, but at the same time, you've got to be flexible within yeah. those boundaries. And there's yeah. some things that it's more important that everybody's kept safe yeah. than actually that then someone get them, gets their nails cut on this occasion. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, it may not be the day. And it, no. I mean, that's quite normal. I think there's a lot of things that we hold expectations around children different to ourselves that most of us kind of like if you're feeling a bit poorly you might go well i'm going to be doing this but you know what i don't really feel like it today i don't yeah. know how to cope with it and we're able to communicate that we're able to control it and whereas straight away children who is especially those with communication difficulties or the cognitive abilities yeah. may not be able to communicate that or understand it in themselves they just can't so we have to be flexible for them rather than being flexible yeah. themselves so um yeah so um as far as to kind of draw us to a, a close on the um, on the uh, on the session, uh, I think this is a subject we could potentially explore in a lot more detail. This is one of those, uh, it's uh, you know the, the the information out there is is massive, um, and I think as you start to go down that rabbit hole, it's it's very very complex, and yeah. and even with some of the the children that you've been mentioning, it's kind of they like that, they don't like that, they they can cope with this, they can't cope with this. It depends on the day, it depends on the yeah. week, and and there's so much to it. Um, but thank you very much for your your time today and, and for sharing your stories with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me along. It's yeah, been, it's been, it's been yeah. good fun. No, it's been very, good. very interesting as well. No, thank it. you very much. Yeah. And hopefully those at home enjoyed uh, stories from both I of us as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, thank you very much for joining us on this week's, uh, this week's podcast or this month's podcast for Michael and for myself. We'll call it a good night. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Goodbye.